Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Happy New Year 2024. Today we are recording episode 126. Before I introduce my guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast. It's called A Gift from Adversity. The subtitle of this book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. After I published this book in 2020, I got a lot of messages from all over the world, and people are willing to share their adversity and stories. So 2022, I decided to create this platform and podcast where people can come in and talk about the adversity, but not only the adversity, but also the tools that people use to overcome and a gift that came from it. And it's been very wonderful sharing the stories from all over the world. So let's invite our guest today. Hello, how are you doing, Sandy? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. So let's start with introduction. Can you tell our audience your name, where you're coming from, and what you do, and if you have any website or social media that people can follow. Sure. My name is Dr. Sandra Musial, and I'm an MD. I live in East Providence, Rhode Island, and I have a Facebook and an Instagram that have the same handle. It's at PlantDocsPVD, um, and I have a YouTube channel that's at PlantDocs. And the website is the same name, plantdocspvd.com. And what can people find out on your website or YouTube channel? What are the contents? Great. So every day I post on Facebook and Instagram either a recipe that I made that was really delicious or an idea I have for eating healthy, being well, and also... um, announcements when our next program's coming up or our next cooking class. And on our website, it's about information about eating healthy, eating whole foods, plant-based. There's a whole recipe section that has appetizers and soups and salads and entrees and healthy snacks and desserts. And there's a section on all of our um, programming. So our main program is called Jumpstart Your Health, where people can join a one-month program. And for the month, there's four different sessions where they learn how to eat super healthy, whole foods, get rid of the processed foods, mostly um, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains, nuts and seeds in order to improve their health. And what's special about this program is that we do blood work before and after. So people can see during the month, the impact that changing your diet will have on your health. And you can see um, we've been collecting data and it is statistically significant, the drop in cholesterol and hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of diabetes and inflammatory markers just in one month. That's truly remarkable. And what is your, before we go into our main question, what is your favorite recipe? I know you have tons, but if you were to share one of your top favorite that um, you can share. 
Sure. My my favorite just came to my mind is the butternut chickpea stew that is on our website. And it, you know, I love butternut squash. It's so yummy, but it has a lot of interesting flavors that you add to it. I remember the first time I made it, I thought lime I'm going to add to, you know, butternut squash soup, but it's a little bit of um, soy sauce, lime, cilantro, a little bit of spice and a little bit of maple syrup. And just like the combination of all of that, plus all the other vegetables that are in it, it's really unique and delicious. And whenever I make it for anybody, they always are like, I've never had anything like this and it's so delicious. So it's one of my favorite things to make. Wonderful. So let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience, what was your adversity? Well, I was trained as a physician in a traditional medical school in the United States. And like all doctors, I learned very little about nutrition, which was really my passion. I studied it as an undergraduate, and I really wanted to make an impact with nutrition on human health. But it wasn't emphasized in medical school, learned very little. And then you get kind of streamlined from, you know, medical school into residency, you have to pick a tract. There was no tract for nutrition or for preventative medicine or for lifestyle medicine for that matter back, back when I trained, which was 34 years ago. So I had to pick something that existed already. And I really didn't have the courage or the um, independence or the confidence to kind of carve my own path. So I went down the traditional route of um, a medical doctor and I became a pediatrician and I joined a private practice, which was wonderful, practicing pediatrics. And, and over the years, like after, you know, over 10 years being there, I just felt like I wanted to do more with nutrition, but still didn't see an avenue in mainstream medicine for how I would do that. So I left the private practice and joined um, a program where I would be teaching residents and medical students because I wanted to just shift gears and see how I could maybe do more with nutrition. And I did get board certified in obesity medicine and now lifestyle medicine. And I took some classes on my own through um, Cornell had a plant-based course. This I took this years ago and it's, it's still in existence now. And Harvard had like a chef coaching program to learn to incorporate cooking and culinary medicine into practice, not necessarily for doctors, but it, it can be for doctors. Um, so, I guess what was frustrating is even after 25 years in the medical field, I, I was frustrated that I saw the answer to so many people's ailments is that people need to eat better, right? The, the poor nutrition in the, the vast majority of Americans, what they eat with the potato chips and the Doritos and the French fries and the cheeseburgers and the bacon and the eggs and the steak and the cheese and cow's milk and, you know, everything that, you know, I ate growing up and I thought was a healthy way to eat, you know, some of it, right? We were told milk was good for you. And, 
But I learned over the years and all the science that's coming out with nutrition and health that, you know, these are all disease promoting foods and are what's leading all of this is what has led to the obesity epidemic that we have in America, the incredibly um, worrisome rise in diabetes, heart disease, coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, the increase in autoimmune diseases, all of these things under my watch over 30 years in the medical field are getting worse, not better. So it's so frustrating. We're in this country with the top medical care in the world, yet we have some of the worst statistics with chronic disease management. And what was even more frustrating was that I could see the answer that we need to change our nutrition, yet medical insurers and hospitals don't want to pay you to do this. There's no um, reward, even though you have all this education and expertise, there was, there was no one to support you to do this work because it's not a drug that's going to bring in billions of dollars. You know, if I were the inventor of Ozempic, I would be, you know, a millionaire, <laughs> but because I want to prescribe broccoli and kale and blueberries, there's nothing, you know, money-making in that. And in fact, if everyone were to eat this way, the hospitals, um, you know, would lose a lot of money because they wouldn't be doing all these cardiac catheterizations and coronary artery bypass operations that, and obesity, you know, the bariatric surgery for obesity medicine, this is bringing in billions of dollars to hospitals. So it's very frustrating. I had to leave mainstream medicine in order to do what I thought was right in the medical field. Well, thank you so much, um, Sandy, for um, sharing this. And I just want to emphasize and then my personal experience, which I, I had some chapter in here, a gift from adversity about my thyroid disease. So when I got thyroid um, hyper in Japan, that they had an operation and removed 70% of my thyroid when I was 20 years old in Japan. And then after my son was born, I was off medication, but then I got TSH about 16. So the doctor said I have to be on medication for the rest of my life. But I said, no, I don't. They, they should be another way. And my friend introduced me to NRT, Nutrition, nutrition Responding Testing uh, Practitioner, that didn't cover by the insurance, like you said. So mm -hmm. I paid out of pocket, but she asked me to write down everything that goes through my mouth and then checked off the things that I shouldn't be eating. And she really changed my diet. And then that lowered my TSH below four, which is a normal level. So wow. I told that in my book, but it's a discipline and it's hard. And then, like you said, the mainstream medicine is cut it off, cut it off, get rid of it. Instead of looking at Yeah. And then, you know, bandage. And how do you fight for that? And then if 90% of this industry is for profit, and 90% of, you know, doctors, well, obviously, lot, and then 
encouraged for this way instead of preventative medicine, um, like acupuncture, for instance, in China, they do it community style that we don't have to charge $100 per hour. There's a community acupuncture in you know the area that you pay $20, which is like a Chinese style because they are not for cutting off the problem after the fact, but preventative of going to acupuncture regularly to you know have a good blood circulation, etc. So the food is one thing that microbiotic um, in Japan, um, the doctor who invented it say we are what we eat. But what is your observation of the historical Western medicine that never believe in this acupuncture or any food nutrition like you mentioned? What what do you think in your practice observation as a medical doctor that left the mainstream? What's what's the challenge in our society? Yeah, I mean, I think it dates back to like if you go back to the 1800s, the way medicine was practiced, there was probably a lot more natural, preventative, herb, herbal remedies being practiced in the United States. But um, I think, you know, when antibiotics and other medications started to be used, that was embraced by the medical field, the science of therapeutics, like these pharmaceutical interventions. And so I think anything that wasn't kind of proven by science was poo-pooed. So a lot of the more natural remedies that maybe are um, effective and efficient and have been known for thousands of years in other countries weren't studied the way we study pharmaceutical drugs. So if they weren't studied, then they weren't going to be embraced by the medical community. So they would, um, and they would exile doctors that, you know, were practicing, um, you know, more natural approaches. They, they were frowned upon and kicked out of medical societies. I mean, even to this date, there's the, um, we're, we're not embracing nutrition in the current medical school education. And this seems like you are what you eat. It's so important. The nutrition that you put in your body creates the health of your cells and your organs. Why isn't it embraced more? I mean, I think it's changing. And there's actually a new field of medicine that I just got board certified in last month called lifestyle medicine. And it's a recognized board certification by, you know, the, the medical um, society in, in America. So I feel like that's, um, but then someone said to me, you know, why is this a specialty or a subspecialty? Shouldn't every doctor know? Like, I just took this whole coursework, you know, for a year, like studying why nutrition and exercise and mindfulness, stress reduction, why all these things um, and how they all help human health and what are the studies? And then you get board certified in it. But someone said to me, why doesn't every doctor take that? This was someone who's just, you know, 
not a doctor and not in the medical field. And I, I thought about it, I'm like, you're right. Why is it a subspecialty? It should be mainstream medicine and every medical student should take the coursework I just took. It's pretty basic. It's interesting that you went all the way back to 1800 and natural remedy. And then when this antibiotics and then, you know, artificial medication were introduced that we or like relying on the miracles and stuff. I remember, I just want to share an interesting story with you. My um, grandfather used to catch a co like a cobra, like a poison snake. It's called mamushi in Japan. And then he catches it from his head and put it in a shochu, which is like a vodka in like a bin. And then he marinates the poison snake in the vodka. And then we had like maybe three or four snakes under the kitchen counter, dead one. And then they used this vodka remedy uh, from the poison snake to burns, cuts, even for fever. So I actually never grew up with traditional medicine, but this poison snake vodka thing that uh, my grandpa was making, and it's just like so interesting. Yeah, that wouldn't fly, right, with the medical <laughs> community. But, you know, I it's things like that that need to be, you know, studied and put to the test. We need to, we you know, there's some things we did that um, were probably, you know, not effective and we did them anyway. Um, but then there's other things that have been studied and have been found to be um, effective. And, and those things are slowly getting more embraced by, by the medical community, like acupuncture is, is, be, is beginning to get acceptance in mainstream medicine, where it was really poo-pooed, you know, not that long ago. Reiki. And even like stress reduction, you know, that seems like, it seems like a no-brainer now, like people, people were like, really? Stress can actually cause like an ulcer or high blood pressure, you know, uh, 30 years ago, it was not really um, accepted. But, you know, now we understand there's there's science behind it. And there's science behind why when people meditate, it literally grows parts of your brain that help with relaxation and decision-making and memory. And it shrinks, literally, physically, when you meditate, shrinks parts of your brain that have to do with like overreactivity and excess emotional states and anxiety. So I, I love that, you know, as a doctor, I do love the science and I want things to be proven. Um, so I love that there's now this science that is supporting things that, you know, people in Asia have been doing and have embraced for thousands of years. Um, so I think there is like more of an integration between Eastern and Western philosophies um, in the last 50 years. I think it's getting better. And I always thought like originally I wanted to go to like a school where I could learn both like the best of everything. Like why not learn traditional Chinese medicine and um, and things that, we, you know, bring back those things that people have known for thousands of years and the Western, you know, new 
kind of medicine and, and be able to, why shouldn't every human have access to all that knowledge, you know, in this day and age and technology, why can't we take the best of everything that works and use it? But I really gravitated to what I feel like is the most fundamental and important piece of human health that is so simple. And it's just eating natural food in its, you know, original state and plant form. And that just seems to help so many conditions and prevent so many conditions. So question for you. So I know you have many, many traditional friends who went to the medical school and then still in the medical field. Do you get backlash? Do they block you? Do they like unfriend you? Like, no, do they say <laughs> something mean to you? No, no. And, but I have to say, I, you know, I, I've been doing this now for 30 years. I moved to Rhode Island 30 years ago in 1993 as a, as a resident at the hospital. And I was nervous about that originally when I was thinking, when I was a pediatrician in the first 10 years of practice, I was thinking, I kept things to myself because I felt like I was um, an outlier and that I was worried that I didn't want to be seen as some quack doctor because there were some kind of, you know, natural doctors in the state that were, I heard what my partners and colleagues were saying about them and I didn't want to be that person. And I felt like if I had left at that time and started plant docs at that time, I, I, I'm not sure it would have been embraced. I don't think people were ready back then. So I felt like I had to wait. And it just kind of unfolded organically that um, when Plant City opened, it's just a new-ish, it's um, opened in 2019. It's a plant-based food hall in Rhode Island that has for restaurants and a marketplace. And it has space for learning and community gatherings, yoga classes, cooking classes. And so that's how plant docs got off the ground. I, I wasn't, I didn't know how to get started, but that was, that gave me kind of an avenue to, I'm going to start running these classes in this community space, space where people are gathering and embracing plant-based eating and here I can teach them how to lower their cholesterol and their blood pressure in a restaurant um, and do blood work. And so keep the medical piece of it. Um, so I gathered the data and I tried to keep it like in line with everything I've learned. The medical doctor, I didn't want to, I really didn't want to do anything hokey or anything that wasn't really um, evidence-based. And um, so I feel like people, people were ready for it at this time. So my doctor friends are, are very admirable um, to what I'm doing. A lot of them have gone through the jumpstart themselves for their own health. Um, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> I feel like there's always a timing for everything. Yeah. And people deny those factuals and then, you know, the brainwash and propagandas and stuff that until the mainstream or majority or some of the movements, you know, start to support these new ideas or maybe old ideas that it's very hard to fight. Like you said, if you had left 10 years after that you had pediatric, 
pediatric doctor practice, maybe it wouldn't be accepted. Maybe you had lost some friends, or maybe somebody said something mean to you, or just you or know. worse. Like you know, mm-hmm. some doctors are you know they try to take their license away if they don't you know. I so I didn't want to practice outside the scope of what was accepted by my profession because I worked very hard to become a, a doctor and. I wanted to stay as a respected physician. So, I mean, I'm pleased with that and the timing of that, but who's not ready for it is um, the, um, the medical insurers. It's very frustrating to me that here I am teaching people to stay healthy, to not get diabetes, heart disease, to not need these operations. Why wouldn't every insurance company pay for every single patient to go through it? You know, it would save them so much money in the long run. And, why, and I feel like it's yeah. a matter of time. But, but why, why do you think it's that? I think it's a process. So I think they need to see more data. So I have been collecting data since I started doing this. Um, and we're publishing it this year, which is wonderful. And that will help. But they need the numbers. They want to see studies with tens of thousands of patients going through. And, you know, I just don't have that. And I can't do that alone. And But together with all these other physicians in this lifestyle medicine, new branch of medicine, people are collecting data and publishing it. And we know now that there's one way of eating that that has been shown so far that can actually reverse the plaque. And like when someone has a heart attack and their arteries, their coronary arteries are blocked with that plaque buildup, there's only one diet that's ever been shown that you can reverse it. People used to think once you have that hard calcified plaque in your arteries, you can maybe slow it, but you can't reverse it. We know now for over 30 years, that you can reverse it by cutting out all the saturated fats and the meats and the dairy and the crap and just eating more vegetables, more fruit, legumes and plant-based proteins and whole grains over all that refined, you know, crappy processed foods that are out there. And it literally opens up the coronary arteries so the blood can flow to the heart again. So we know this and science has shown this. So I, so the, and there are like um, the Dean Ornish programs. There's one in East Greenwich. I believe it's the only one in New England, but they are all over the United States. It's a cardiac rehab program for people who have had a serious cardiac event, like a heart attack or needed a stent placement in their heart for a narrowed artery. The insurance companies will now pay for them to go to a Dean Ornish program. But it took, I think, 10 to 15 years for Dean Ornish to to get it paid for. And he was actually working with um, President Clinton and President Clinton adopted his way of eating because of his heart disease. And even knowing the president, he couldn't get insurers to cover it. It's just, I don't really understand why it should be so complicated. That is a big challenge. So I went to Berkeley College of Music where they had a music therapy major. Mm. A lot of people do not pay for music therapists to come, especially after stroke. The study shows the neural paths between the left and the right brain, the music therapy can create a new path to help the stroke patient. Mm. So after the long study, 
Dr. Suzanne Hanser, uh, who used to be the chair of music therapy. Uh, she was one of the pioneers of this study. And then she had Blue Cross Blue Shield approved for the insurance to cover the music therapist to come and help sing mm -hmm. and play instrument with them, stroke patient. But that was just so significant. And then it just, like you said, takes data and then takes, you know, political movement and then understanding. And I feel like this is just my biases and then my own opinion. So don't quote me on this. But I feel like all the stuff that's put in the jar of the food that we don't read, we cannot pronounce, those stays in your body. And I try to buy food that has something that I can pronounce easily, the letters le less than five, like eight letters. Yeah, that, like, yeah, that's 13, a great place to start. 13 letters. It shouldn't <laughs> look like a chemistry experiment. <laughs> I don't even know what this is. I can't even pronounce. And those are the ones that stays in your body. And I remember I was introduced um, to this book about carrot. And then a carrot that comes from the ground, that there was a doctor in Japan. This is when I was like 19, that when I was homeless and working at the resort hotel, the owner introduced me to this interesting book about the universe and then the carrots and then the um, pesticides. And then basically this doctor discovered a carrot that was raised in the nature with the weed and then no pesticides or whatever, weed killer or anything that has the most nutrition in the carrot, the most natural way. And then how he, he actually, not in the book, experimented the artificial salt versus the sea salt that he put in the water and he like mixed it. And then the artificial salt that we call it like, you know, regular salt, was just you know dense at the bottom but the sea salt with the water it melted and you can't see at the end so that's one of the examples that he showed me all these chemicals that you put in your body jury that is going to be the cyst that's going to be something that you have to remove at some point i don't know the answer but i feel like my train of thought is because the insurance, because the doctor, this mainstream medicine, billion dollars of industry. I don't know who's controlling this food industry, but I feel like these chemicals that are put in intentionally to make us sick, I have no idea. But that's the challenge I think um, that people are not aware of. And then if a lot of people start to voice out, and then like you, um, and then recognize the insurance because at the end of the day they are collecting money from us the sick people but then we are the one who suffer not being able to drive you know being sick as a mom i had a surgery last year it was awful but you know what do you say to these kind of social pictures and then political movements and then that your observation of you know what's going on yeah. And, you know, also rates of cancer, you know, we're seeing certain cancers at younger ages, like they just lowered the 
recommended age for the first colonoscopy from 50 to 45 because we're seeing colon cancer at younger and younger ages. And we know colon cancer is directly related to the food we eat. A diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables and really high in fiber is much, you know, beneficial and preventative um, for colon cancer. And eating processed red meats is a very known, um, well-known carcinogen for for colon cancer. But I think also, you know, all these additives and chemicals that you mention are contributing to um, cancers and, and the chemicals, ex chemical exposure in the environments, the flame retardants that's on all our furnitures and, you know, all the off-gassing from rugs and upholstery and mattresses that we spend a third of our life on. And, and there's just like on and on and on these chemicals that, you know, I think what's, what's hard is I think originally they're added for good intention. I don't think they're added to make us sick intentionally. I don't think someone's trying to sabotage the human race, <laughs> although we are. Um, I think they're added initially because they don't want children to die in a fire when, the, you know, I think it all started when people used to smoke in bed and they would fall asleep and the cigarette would burn the mattress. And so they came up, well, let's make the mattresses flame retardant so people don't die when they smoke in bed and drop their cigarette. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But it hasn't gone away. And now there are laws in certain states. You can't buy a mattress without this gross flame retardant chemical that's seeped into the mattress. I was just trying to find one that was organic recently. And I had to order it from California. <laughs> but uh, my other point that I wanted to make about this was, so people in the know, which, you know, there's more and more people that are becoming aware, like, oh, I need to read the ingredients because I want them to all be pronounceable. Or I want to buy this expensive mattress from California because I don't, you know. Unfortunately, it's creating this disparity. So people with money and education and wealth have more access to these healthy things. And people that um, are historically underrepresented and from minority communities, um, they can't afford, of course, to order a mattress from California. They can't afford to buy certain kinds of foods. Um, the cheap foods are the, you know, four for four deal at the um, four dollars you can go to some fast food restaurant and get some chemical laden saturated fat animal based gross refined food which i don't even think it should be called that so yeah we need to address that too is there any legislation or state or federal law or mo political movement that you are aware of for this for food or for chemicals or? Well, any type of, of um, studies that you've been doing that would drastically change our industry or insurance type of things that any of the politicians are making the new bill or if you're- Yeah, not that I know of as far as nutrition. Um, there's little things that pop up here and there like um, a tax on sugary beverages, for example, that- has was adopted in certain cities and towns and then slowly like a state will adopt it and then they they did it for example in i believe it was berkeley california they had 
they had a for this for the city a tax on sugary beverages and if the result so then they follow the data right and the result showed that um, fewer people you know have the sugary um, sodas that there's decrease in sales as a result of it there's more the money's put into education so people are making healthier choices and you know it's some people oppose that because they're like, oh, I want to be able to have my Coke. This is America. It's a free country. I want to be able to have what I want to have. But then people who don't know enough are the victims, you know, the children or people that aren't educated to that, that it's an unhealthy thing. So I don't know. I'm torn. I, I, you know, I do think government needs to get involved. And I think maybe we need to redefine what food is. Um, and we shouldn't be selling items as food that decrease your longevity and promote disease states. I mean, when you go to the supermarket, like you see this food that that you don't call it maybe food, but then um, when you go to certain, like say Whole Foods, like, you know, you definitely see less of these chemicals um, in the product that they, you know, right. on their shelves by choice, right? So, and it's interesting that access of the wealth and then the poor, that um i've experienced myself i'm a single mom of two and then when i didn't have snap which is a food stamp right now in massachusetts i had a wick and a wick actually do not allow you to shop at whole foods huh. and a wick doesn't allow you to buy organic food really only it only allows you to a certain brand that has a ton of chemicals in it. Mm. So I actually end up not using much of the voucher. But now, luckily, the SNAP allows you to purchase food from anywhere of your choice, which includes Whole Foods, which is my favorite place in the world. And doesn't it include some farmer's markets now, too? I believe so. I haven't utilized yet, but I remember hearing at the farmer's market some of the, um, I think, you know, like um, the cashier, like um, Apple Pay, but mm -hmm. they can accept certain SNAP. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it has to be um, by choice of the, um, you know, vendors. So mm -hmm. I don't know how it works. But mm. In Rhode my, Island, I know you can go to any farm fresh Rhode Island um, farmer's market and use the SNAP benefits. So that's what I'm saying. The WIC wasn't allowed, allowing me to purchase anything from Whole Foods. Yeah, I didn't know so, that. It's interesting. To prove your point that poor gets more chemical food because of, you know, we don't have access to it. Yeah, it's cheaper. Well, thank you so much for bringing this awareness uh, to us. And then I'm very glad that you are still able to practice your license in like adoptive ways. And then I'm very happy to hear that you are not being discriminated by other colleagues. And then um, a lot more people are starting to feel um, that this is, you know, a better way. And then obviously like the incident that happened to my daughter, like recently, those are emergency situations that we definitely need modern medicine for help. Right, of course. But 
the chronic illness or diabetes and cancer or heart attacks that you mentioned, I truly 100% agree with you because of my thyroid condition that I experienced myself. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you bringing this to the table with medical doctors, procedures, and then, you know, collecting the data. And then I really hope that a lot of people join you and then collecting the data to, you know, make a right move um, to improve, especially our children's and the next generation's health. So let's move on to the second question, which is the tools that you use to overcome this adversity. You mentioned that you waited a little bit um, to pursue what you really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But some of the challenges that you face, um, that you use some of the techniques to be able to basically pursue what you believe in, not the mainstream. What are the tools that you use that really worked for you that you can share with our audience? Um, I think one was I had to self-educate. Um, what I wanted and needed to learn, I wasn't learning. I didn't learn in the traditional way. So that was the first thing. The second thing is connecting with other people that um, to make a network. Um, find band together with other people that are like-minded, even though the vast majority of people don't want to eat the way I eat. There are plenty of people that are ready to take a step in the right direction, that they don't want to take another pill and they are ready to change their diet. And they are realizing that the way they've been eating for 50 years is poisoning their body. So banding together with other, you know, social workers, nutritionists, um, nurses, doctors that are like-minded and educated in with the most current knowledge about nutrition and health really empowered me to take the bold move to, um, to start this practice and then to, you know, to leave you know, a, a very good paying, respectable job to start this nonprofit and um, go out on my own. Well, thank you so much. Before I move on to the last question, which is a gift that came from it, would you explain to me how the nonprofit that you created, that you mentioned, is sustaining you financially and then how is it working out for you after leaving the credible, you know, mainstream work? Yeah, um, it's not sustaining me. <laughs> it's sustaining my soul, but it's not sustaining me financially. Um, I've, I think eventually there'll be more um, people signing up. And right now it's a fee for service. So people pay to do the programs that I offer until the insurance companies um, start to reimburse it. People have to pay for it. It's just the way it is right now, unfortunately. Um, and I'm just making enough with the number of people that are interested at this point to pay for my malpractice insurance um, and the expenses associated. So I'm really just breaking even as a nonprofit. And I have to live from other means, from money that I've saved before um, as a physician. So I haven't paid myself in three years since I started the nonprofit, but I haven't 
you know, I'm not in a deficit. I'm it's breaking even, which is great. And it's getting busier. I'm able, I have a couple people working for me now. So I'm making enough money to pay the people to help me communicate with everybody and spread the word and try to reach more people and help more people. And we had our first fundraiser this year and all the money from that is going to scholarships. So we can, um, have people come through the program that can't afford to pay the $250 for the month program. There are um, scholarships for people that are interested. And we also ran our first program in Spanish this year, which um, I think is really important. Um, in Providence, we have a very large Spanish speaking community and I felt like they're not getting this knowledge and I, I want everyone to have access to this information about nutrition. So I paired up with a, um, a woman doctor who um, is very interested in this, who speaks Spanish. And then we also had a Spanish speaking uh, medical student who translated all of my slides and information um, into Spanish. And we ran the class entirely in Spanish. And that was free for them. It was part of the um, nonprofit, you know, offerings based on our um, grants and um and fundraising efforts that we're able to do these programs. Well, thank you so much again for sharing your story. This was very important and educational conversation. And then I really appreciate you coming to our show. And um, my last question is a gift that came from your university. So what would you say a gift? Um, I, I believe that, you know, doing following your heart is so important. And I feel like this is what I wanted to do when I was in an undergraduate program 35 years ago. And I, you know, part of me wishes I, I did it back then, but like we were talking about earlier, like maybe society wasn't ready for it 35 years ago. And maybe I needed, this was my journey and I needed to become a respectable doctor first and get, you know, practice, get my feet wet and real medicine. And um, it's just the way it unfolded for me. But I, I'm grateful that I took that plunge, you know, like the leap of faith to leave medicine and follow my heart. I, I, you know, I, fortunately, I've, I have money saved, so I can afford to do this and, um, and be able to support myself. Um, but I feel so fulfilled in what I'm doing. And I feel like I'm, you know, I, I just light up when I talk about food. And when I, when I, when someone calls me and tells me that their diabetes has gone away, and they're so grateful for the program that I have that changed their life, that it's all I want to do now. Well, thank you very much again for coming to a gift from adversity today. Thank you for having me. It's been really wonderful chatting with you. Absolutely. And thank you to our audience for tuning into another episode of A Gift from Adversity. And it will continue our dialogue. And I'm grateful for all the guests and listeners. See you next time.